Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. Well, you could say that we're celebrating just about the weirdest Easter ever this year. Okay, maybe that's a bit of an overstatement because I'm guessing that very first Easter when no one expected Jesus to be alive, that was probably the weirdest Easter ever. But this one is coming close, isn't it? I mean, here we are, or rather, here we aren't. You and I separated by a distance, by a pandemic. And, and, and when we look around, we think, we're, we're on the weekend where we're supposed to celebrate the greatest event in history. And we can't even get together. Can't even get together as a church family, can't get together as friends, even as families were limited in our gatherings. So let's all just call it what it is, okay? It's weird, it's perplexing, it's confusing. Maybe even in a way, it's just at risk of being another day in a very long April. Our traditional celebrations, canceled. Our gatherings, canceled. Our our worship services, canceled. Our Easter egg hunts, canceled. Our, all the things we do to raise the roof because we want to celebrate that Easter is here have been, say it with me, canceled, right? And now we are sort of waving to each other somewhat pathetically over screens, sometimes with people who are just actually down the street from us, or maybe over fences, or as we do these drive-by conversations, and we're all just hoping this is going to be over soon. We want to be able to, well, at least some of us, run across the street into each other's arms. You know, well, some of you do, I know. We just want this to be over. But friends, as weird as this might be, Easter isn't canceled. Easter is still here. <laughs> I mean, Good Friday came and went. We celebrated it. It's gone. Jesus was dead. And he is now alive. The tomb, it's still empty. And the only thing that has been canceled, truly canceled, is death itself. Jesus burst from the tomb and there's nothing. No pandemic, no virus, no crisis, no isolation, nothing at all that can change that fundamental, life-changing, history-altering truth. Jesus rose. He is risen. Indeed. Friends, here's the thing. More than ever, we need to know God's promise of resurrection. We need to know it down in our bones that there's something he did for Jesus that he's going to do for us. Guaranteed. Now you might be at home alone right now. You might be watching this on your phone and there's no one else around. You might be sitting with a spouse or a friend you might be with a roommate that you've been in isolation with or quarantine with. You might be surrounded by bored, stir-crazy kids. You might be worried about your kids because you're separated from them. You might be wondering if your kids are going to be square-eyed when all this is done because of all their screen time that they've been getting. Let's be honest, a fair bit of overdosing going on. We understand. And I'm sure there's some of you, maybe all of us, just a little bit sick of this and are just praying that this is going to be over so we can move 
on. Well, wherever you find yourselves today, wherever you find your heart and your mind, I want you to understand the heart of God. The God who, as we've been looking for the last few weeks, the God who surrounds us, the God who is with us, and now the God who will raise us. May Easter ring our resurrection out clearly to you this year. And so for a couple minutes, I just want to direct our attention to that, to the God who will raise us, and the implications, the difference that that makes for us in our lives. What I want to do is take you to 1 Corinthians 15. It's one of uh, two letters that we have that Paul wrote to this super messed up church, like very messed up. And they were located in the ancient city of Corinth. Modern city of Corinth is there too in, in Greece. And it's the seventh letter in the New Testament. And it covers a wild assortment of spiritual, ethical, sexual, theological confusions that seem to be circulating among these brothers and sisters of ours about 2,000 years ago. Well, toward the end of this incredible letter, Paul takes them to task over their profound confusion about the resurrection, specifically about their resurrection. A confusion that actually, if you work your way backwards to the rest of the letter, it's probably at the root of many of their other problems. Because the truth is, if you get your theology of the body, or in a larger sense, your theology of creation wrong, then you get the whole Christian life wrong along with it. And that's what we see here. Well, these Christians, they seem to still believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. But there were some who were denying that anybody else would. Likely, they bought into some way of viewing creation as somehow lesser than or even evil. Some Gnostic or Greek ideas had crept in. And so there were people who were actually rejecting physical resurrection for us. And to counter that, Paul lays out a beautiful argument for the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. A big, long chapter. And I'm going to share almost none of it with you today. I know that sounds painful, but this is, this is how it's going to work. This romp through 1 Corinthians 15, which I'll take you on here, it'll be like the worst tour you've ever had through the best museum you could ever visit. It'll be like, you know, the kind where the curator grabs you by the hand and then runs you through the museum. And the moment you try to stop and see something, he says, no, 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 just take a look quick and keep moving, you know. I know it's Van Gogh, but you don't have time to stare. Keep moving. It's going to be that kind of tour through 1 Corinthians 15. That'll be our morning. Are you ready? Okay, why am I doing that? Because I'm actually eager to get to the end of the tour. I'm eager so that we can pause and apply the truth of Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection and the implications that has for us here and now. So, grab a hold of my hand, virtually. Or better yet, grab a Bible, a pen, maybe some paper, jot some notes. Can later on, when you can turn off the screen, well, I guess you could pause it too while we're going. You can cheat that way. But, you know, you can come back, take a look through some of the notes, and take a little more time in 1 Corinthians 15. But for now, we're going to move pretty fast. All right, 1 Corinthians 15. First, Paul starts at ground zero. That Jesus' resurrection is an established fact in history, anchored with eyewitnesses, anchored in reality, real life. And I'll read just the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 15. It says, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, 
I want to remind you of the gospel I preached, the good news I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. This is what they believed. He gets to it now in verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. This is where everything starts. Paul wants them to know this is not really what they've been struggling with. They seem to have accepted the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead, but he anchors it in history. He anchors it in real life events. He points out the hundreds upon hundreds of still living people that they could have gone and interviewed to find out more about this Jesus guy who rose again from the dead. Established fact of history. That's where everything starts. Now listen, do you have doubts about that? I know that some of us at the Erickson Covenant Church are still exploring faith. And you know how much I love that. And you know how much we as a church, we celebrate that there are those of you among us who aren't so sure about this Jesus rising again from the dead business, but willing to explore it here in our community. Love it. I also know that here on Easter and here on the screen, that there might be some of you, friends of mine or people from around the community who are who are tapping in today because they can do it, you can do it in the privacy of your own home, and we don't know you're watching, and you're just not sure about the whole Jesus thing. Can I just make a little invitation to you before I go on? I want to recommend to you the work of a man named J. Warner Wallace at coldchristianity.com. Coldcasechristianity.com, sorry. Um, and he, this guy's fascinating. He was a, a, he's a career homicide detective, Still works as a cold case detective on, on many uh, different cases. Consulted um, a, a lot, on, even on news media and whatnot, on cold cases. And has solved many of them. Uh, he himself was an atheist. And it was when he was challenged to begin to apply his own thinking as a cold case detective to the resurrection accounts of Jesus that he came to faith in Christ. He wrote, wrote a great book called Cold Case Christianity, which I invite you to check out, or just go to coldcasechristianity.com and explore the many resources he has there, you owe it to yourself. This is the biggest news ever. Jesus came back from the dead, really dead, and now really alive. So if you have any doubts, do some digging. We invite you to do that. Because that's where everything starts. The established fact of Jesus' resurrection firmly in hand as a real historical event. And Paul wants, and we're all on the same basis there, and now he moves on to rebut, actually, the main confusion that these Corinthian Christians had. They accepted Jesus' resurrection, but some of them were rejecting ours. Well, Paul's not having any of that. Listen to how tightly now Paul links the resurrection of Jesus with our resurrection. He does it in verses 12 to 19. Here it is. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say 
that there is no resurrection of the dead. You hear that? Jesus realized we didn't, we don't. This is the main thing he's taking issue with. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Did you catch that? Paul says you can't actually have one without the other. And that might be a new thought to you. Paul says either we all get raised or none of us get raised. Paul sees the resurrection as a two-stage event. Single event with two stages. That if you get stage one, you get stage two. In other words, Jesus is risen, we will rise. Get stage one, get stage two. But he also wants to understand that without stage two, there actually is no stage one. Now you might find this surprising because it's not just that he makes our resurrection dependent on Jesus' resurrection, which it is. In some kind of mysterious way, he flips that around and says, actually, in order, like if our resurrection isn't true, then neither is Jesus's. That our resurrection has to be true in order for the resurrection of Jesus to be true. Now he's developing his argument, so look where he goes next. He wants to make this idea of a two-stage resurrection explicit. He says it in verse 20, and then I'll skip a few verses and read a few more. I'm going fast, I know. Here it is. In verse 20 he says, But, but, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Then in verse 23, But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father, kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Well, that's pretty clear. First Christ, then us. Christ is a kind of first fruit, the first bit of harvest that comes in. And we... Our resurrection is the rest of the harvest. And that's the order of things, and Paul wants them to see that. But his main point is this. You can't have one without the other. Are you with me so far? Our resurrection really matters. What, G what God did for Jesus is like a prototype. And then the rest of us will roll off the line as the main delivery that Jesus is the prototype of. We'll roll off the line as the main delivery when Jesus finally comes and destroys death that final town time. Because now, and now I'm going to go even faster here, Paul wants to make something else clear. He says, without our resurrection, if we are not going to be raised, he says, life doesn't actually work. I mean, if we're living with no resurrection coming, then we can't really have purpose now, according to his understanding. 
Now, that doesn't mean people don't live with some kind of purpose, but he's linking it to the ultimate purpose that God has for us, to be reunited with him, to explore and and enjoy all of new creation. We can't have any of that if there is no resurrection. Now, I'll admit, the next few verses in 1 Corinthians, there's some weird stuff in here. Uh, stuff that keeps commentators in a fervor quite, quite a bit. Things about baptism for the dead or fighting wild beasts in Ephesus. And lots of commentators have tried to figure out what that meant. We're going to leave that to the side for now. The main point of the section, the next section that follows, verses 29 to 34, is summarized in verse 32. And it's this. If the dead are not raised, in other words, if there's no resurrection, and then he quotes from Isaiah, he said, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If we aren't going to be raised, then let's just live it up. I mean, if there's no resurrection coming, do what you like. There's no ultimate justice. There's no ultimate end. Live how you want to live. If we only have today to live, and then who knows? Well, friends, why don't you just live for yourself and don't let anyone tell you any different? But Paul wants to make this clear. Only our future resurrection can give our present reality true meaning and purpose. And he's going to come back to that at the end. And so now, let's jog to the end. Paul tries to unpack something the Corinthians must have been wrestling with. They must have had uh, objections that they raised about the resurrection. One of them being, well, what kind of body will that be? And so he actually spends a bit of time unpacking the kind of body we will have. And It's fascinating stuff, worthy of deep conversation. But in a nutshell, he wants to say, It'll be awesome, and it'll be real. There's a way in which our bodies will be entirely renewed, transformed, but not in this ghostly, ethereal, sort of non-physical way. No, actually, our bodies will be like the resurrected body of Jesus. Very physical, more physical, very real, more real, in fact, than you could ever have imagined. Very much improved, a real human body, real creation body, but that is now able to live for real, live for good, live for eternity. As Paul himself puts it, the perishable putting on the imperishable. Listen to verses 54 to 57. We're getting toward the end. 54 to 57 says this. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us right to the end of the chapter with one verse left, the conclusion of our tour. Are you with me so far? Here's a quick recap. This kind of recaps the whole chapter. God will raise us up because he already raised Christ. He raised Christ. We know it's a sure thing from history that's linked with our own resurrection when we get a new body just like Jesus after he's come and destroyed death. And that's basically the argument of 1 Corinthians 15. Well, with all of that in mind, Now Paul finishes his grand resurrection argument with some deeply practical words. Verse 58, last verse in the chapter, he says, therefore. Now remember, whenever you see a therefore anywhere, but particularly in scripture, you stop and ask yourself, what's it there for? 
And we realize at that moment that Paul is actually summarizing. He's making a conclusion. He's saying, in light of everything, in light of all this deep conversation and this tight arguments and all these things I've said and all these grand ideas, in light of everything and all of this being true, here are the implications. And he gets super practical with this application for us. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul names two very practical implications for us, applications for us. The first one is about making us solid. In light of everything, in light of Jesus' resurrection, in light of what God is going to do in us, in light of our resurrection coming, all of that, we can stand firm. And the challenge is that we do that, that we look at the resurrection and we see the promises of God and we let nothing move us. Now, I don't know what's making you quiver today, what's making your heart quail. It could be fear, it could be boredom, it could be loneliness, it could be anger, frustration, despair. I don't know what it is. It could be doubts about the reality of God's goodness. It could be questions about the purpose of your own life. You could be listening to voices that say, you know, it really is all about you. Just eat and drink and party because, hey. Or it could be voices that say, you know, God's not really going to make good on his promises. Isn't that all just a bunch of make-believe fairy tale? But standing firm means that we can get clear on who God is that we can look to the resurrection of Jesus, we can see what God has done, and we can say, oh, wow, that there, that's something that's true. That's something we can rely on. That there is a God who surrounds us, there is a God who is with us, and there is a God who will raise us. And that promise has been guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus himself. Resurrection makes us solid. We can stand firm in this. Now, standing firm doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge the difficulties around us. There are plenty. We know that. It means instead that we look back to the resurrection of Jesus. We look forward to the resurrection that is ours. And we hold tight. We stand firm, knowing that we can look back and look forward, placing our hands on these two events. We can weather any storm that comes. We can be lashed to the mast so that nothing can move us. Death has been defeated. That is a fact. And when our resurrection does come and death is finally destroyed, we will know these things for sure. His resurrection, our resurrection, two stages of the same event, and it gives us ground that we can stand on. And Paul wants us to know that. We can stand firm. The second application, instead of standing firm, keeps us moving. It is that we always give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that this work, this labor in the Lord, is not in vain. Now this is so fascinating because in all this talk, all the deep thinking that we can do about new creation, about resurrection, about what that's going to be like, it could lead people to think less of today, even less of the things around them. But that's actually exactly wrong. Yeah, Christians have done that. You maybe have heard the saying, Christians who have been so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. But that's usually because they have a misunderstanding of heaven in the first place. 
Friends, when you drill down on what the resurrection really means, when we get to a greater understanding of what it means for our bodies to be raised, for the renewal of all creation to happen, that the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus, the creation and the creation of the recreation of this world means that God loves this world, and that it in no way diminishes the meaning of our lives today. In fact, it enhances it. It amps it up. Understanding God's intent for this world, how he would become part of it, how he would raise up his son, how he would raise us up, how he would renew all of creation, how that's promised in Christ, it gives us true purpose for our lives today, that what we do matters, that how we love matters, that glorifying God with our work, with our art, with our writing, with our thinking matters, that raising our kids matters, that revealing God's heart to others through our words and actions really matters, that caring for creation matters. That everything we do and say, eat or pray, matters. It matters because of the resurrection. It's actually the absolute opposite of the nihilistic philosophy that says, well, hey, the dead aren't going to be raised, so let's just do whatever we want. Resurrection gives us true purpose. And so, friends, we're able to always give ourselves to the work of the Lord, the good news of loving our neighbor, of healing the sick, of raising up the broken, of proclaiming God's kingdom, of making Jesus famous in every way that we can. That kind of work. And why? Because that work, that labor in the Lord, Paul says, it's never wasted. It's never in vain. It's never lost. That in some profound way that I don't fully understand, in some mysterious unfolding of God's creative power, everything we do now matters. Every act of service, every way of love, God somehow catches it all up so that nothing is wasted. And when he raises us up, we will see the profound ways in which he's included everything in his new creation. Resurrection makes life better, makes life matter more now than ever and forever when Jesus finally comes to set everything right. And so, my friends, Erickson Covenant Church family and anyone else who has gathered with us today, resurrection is real. Jesus' resurrection and ours. So stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time or you have been following him for years. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.